This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to today's mini masterclass. I'm your host, James Roy. Today I'm talking to Melina Maketa. Now, because of certain circumstances, today's masterclass has had to be uh, done on a phone link up rather than on the Zoom that we've been using. So we do apologise for the slightly uh, poorer audio quality of this particular podcast. But what Melina has to say, I'm sure, is going to be very useful for anyone who is interested in writing from the point of view of identity. Today I'm talking to Melina Maketa, and Melina won't be a new name to anyone who's been paying attention for the last couple of decades, especially around the young adult literature world. Um, Melina first came to everyone's attention with a book that I think, how old is Ella Brandy now, Melina? It'd be 30 years? Must be getting no, close to that. Um, it's 28 years. 28 years, anyway. So the better part of better part of three decades. Looking for Ella Brundy first came out when I was uh, I wasn't yet published. And I remember um, going and hearing Melina read from that book at uh, the Harold Park Hotel and being very envious of her, her growing success. And um, she's left a lot of us in the dust in the uh, in the years following that. Looks like The Piper's Son and On the Jellicoe Road and Finnick of the Rock and a whole bunch of other books, but um, it was looking for Alabrandi to put you on the map, wasn't it, Melina? Can you explain why that was? Why, why do you think that was? I think it was, um, I would say it was the right book at the right time, and um, and that's not kind of putting it down to any other era, but I think that at that stage, there really weren't a lot of books um, about the, I suppose, the migrant experience written by a migrant. A lot of times... They, there were stories about migrants, but they were written by you know, Anglo-Australians or Celtic-Australians. And there's nothing wrong with that, especially at that time. But um, I think that people just really responded to the fact that it, you know, it was an authentic voice. So for anyone, who, anyone who's been living under a rock for the last 30 years, um, can you give us a, a brief um, rundown on what Alabrandi was actually about? What's, what's the basic premise of the story? It's about a um, a 17-year-old girl who um, is grappling with identity, cultural identity, more than anything. She's been raised by, you know, her her single mum and her Italian grandmother. And in this particular year, she um, meets her father for the first time and she comes to terms with her family's past, which kind of gives her a bit of a, I suppose, um, um, an idea of how to really deal with so it's about identity, it's about not fitting in, and it's about trying to work out who you are um, when everyone around you is kind of defining you by their own, I suppose. Um, uh, and young, young, adult has a, young adult has a long tradition of this idea of, um, well, I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, the HSC topic of uh, study was belonging. Um, and then it became journeys, and it became who knows what else. But it's always really about discovery the, as well. I think they discovery, right? Right, and and basically they're all just basically catch-alls for I, what I feel is the same the same idea, the idea of fitting in and belonging. And then you know we've got this strong tradition of books that were based around pl- 
Flask, you know, for, you can go back as far as Romeo and Juliet, I suppose, but, you know, The Outsiders and these sorts of books. This is one of the first books that I know of that really kind of did it along cultural lines, though, wasn't it, in Australia at least? You know, I remember being told constantly at the time, and even by my publishers, that it was, just, for them, it was such an authentic voice. And it was kind of a flawed voice. Like, I was actually a bit embarrassed at first, and and I thought, oh, my God, people are going to think that this is the way I speak. And um, But I think it was the first time in this country that we were hearing about what the migrant experience was all about, whereas I think in the past it was either stereotyped or it was romanticised. Um, you know, the other always seems to be either stereotyped or romanticised, and I think that there was, you know, this very, very flawed character. Josie is incredibly um, flawed. I mean, there's a lot of um, grey areas with regard to her personality, and I think that people really responded to that. She wasn't the perfect girl who you wanted to be, and she wasn't the villain. She was just somewhere in between. So when you talk about being a flawed voice, is that what you mean? I think she's a flawed, flawed character. I, I found her unlikable, and, um, <laughs> you know, I, I remember very, very close to when it was published, I was saying to my publisher, I really want to change this part because I don't like the way she speaks to her mother and, and I remember being told no, it doesn't belong to you anymore it belongs to everyone else and we like that part of her so, you know, she she wasn't I think that when I was growing up there were, I mean, there were so many multi-dimensional characters but there were also the one-dimensional good girl and the one-dimensional smart girl, the smart girl was always a good girl um, and I think that with Josie, there, there are aspects of her that are really quite unlikable. And because the novel is written in the first person, I always tell people, do not believe everything she's telling you because it is a very, very limited um, point of view, I'd say. It's the way she sees the world. And I think that when you're young, you're a lot more limited about the way you see the world. You, you can't see someone else's point of view or you believe that your way is the right way and that person is the villain and you're not. And I think that that's what people like about it. And I've made the point in other podcasts, and so anyone who's listened to others will probably be tired of hearing me say this, but part of the appeal for me of writing for young people, especially much younger, but also YA, is playing with that idea of the unreliable narrator and knowing mm. that the reader is going to immediately see through that and going, actually, you know what, you were being a bit of a turd when you, you said whatever to your mum when you just thought you were within your own right. Yeah, yeah. And I think that when you're saying it, you do not believe for one moment, moment that you're being that, but it's great for a reader to be able to pick up. In a way, they're picking up their own weaknesses and their own kind of flaws as well. And um, I think that was her appeal because... You know, for me, I'm not saying that I'm confused by why this story has resonated so much, but I'm always curious about what it is um, that a, 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 an audience from today gets out of her because there's no social networking in it, you know, there's no social media, um, yeah. it's, 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 there's no computers even in it. It's just really a story about fitting in and working out who you are. And I really love the fact that at the end of the day, you're kind of, in a way, still looking for the same thing. In a sense, what you're doing there is, um, and I guess this is sort of a, a good tip for anyone who's listening to this because they want to write identity-driven stories. I mean, I know it's character-driven stories, but for today's purposes, we're talking about identity-driven, I guess. But you know, it might be a good tip to kind of realise that it needs to stand or 
stand or fall on its own merits in terms of how it deals with that feeling of identity and not belonging and so forth, rather than the props of modern life, for example. Yeah, definitely, because as I said, I think that ultimately the universal experience doesn't really change. Um, and you used a good word there, the props around it changes, but ultimately, you know, nothing changes about what it's like to be um, a teenager where you don't have control over your life when you're 17 and you're just beginning to be given um, control and you don't know what to do with it. I think that that is a, you know, thousand-year-old um, issue with young mm. people. And I think yeah. that if you stick to um, that, that bigger picture and then the little picture is formed by the specifics of someone's home life and, you know, their, their community. But I think the big picture has to um, be those universal things. Do you think that um, it is a... Is it a book that you could write now, 30 years later? Would it meet the same kind of uh, response that it met then? Or do you think that in the 30 years since, or 28 years since that book came out, that the experience of the Italian-Australian community has changed at all in that time? Um, it has changed considerably, but I think that what I've loved from the, um, the response to this book is it speaks to people who are part of a minority today. Um, you know, I get a lot of um, response from people who, um, even refugees, it, it, it speaks to them. So I think that um, I don't know whether the Italian experience as such would be able to be written about in the same way, but I think it goes back to the other and the mm. experience of someone other than the dominant culture, we've still got such a long way to go, I think, in exploring what it feels um, not to belong to that dominant culture because I still think that our everyday life in this country is dominated, you know, by um, you know who we see on our television screens, what right. they look like. Do you think that somebody of say a uh, you know, Sudanese background or a Afghani background or, or whatever would take some sort of hope from from reading your book and seeing the way things were three decades ago? To, yeah, I'd love to think um, they do. And I suppose because I've had response, you know, so much from people who are from, you know, say an Arabic background or, you know, anywhere in the Middle East or even um, an Asian background, they've said that their, you know, their want of writing came from reading my book and, not thinking, my God, it's brilliant. I'd love to think that they thought that. But it was more than if she could do it about her culture, I can do it. I can write about mine. So it's more of that step of this person who belonged to a minority back then was able to write this story, then why am I? So um, I just think it's, once again, it's, it's in those books written by anyone. There's something that, a general audience can res that resonates with a general audience. I think that that's what works. You can't just make it specifically for a particular audience because you'll only get that particular audience um, reading it. Aaron Sorkin, who wrote uh, The West Wing and The Social Network movie and, and Newsroom and so others, and a lot of his work I love and some of it I'm not so hot on, but certainly West Wing I thought was extraordinary. But uh, he was asked once how does he come up, how he came up with his characters for The West Wing, and he, uh, his answer was, I, it's pretty simple really, I just ask them what they want and then I work really hard to stop them getting it. It's probably a really simple question to answer, but what does, uh, what does Josie want? 
more than anything. I think she wants social acceptance, um, you know, from her peers and um, the wrong peers sometimes and what she discovers at the end. It's the age-old, you know, question you're asking soon when you're writing, you know, what are her wants and what are her needs? And, you know, what someone wants is really not important in the end. It's what they need that's important. So, um, you know, I suppose my thing, going back to what you were saying about um, Aaron Sorkin is, I always take something away from my character at the very beginning, um, something really big, and I just sit back and watch them struggle, you know, to work out um, what it is that they do want, and they end up not wanting what I probably took away, I suppose, in the first place. So it's, it's interesting for the writer not to sometimes know the direction the characters are going, but I do end up with um, kind of rewarding them with what they need rather than what they want. In my own work as you know, writing short stories and so forth, I, I've often uh, wanted to and have occasionally given in to the urge to write from the point of view of somebody who is a, of a different ethnicity, if you like. Mm. And I was given... Um, I remember reading from my book Town when I was out in, um, out in the, re- the boonies somewhere with, uh, with Philip Gwynn and I read from the story that is told from the point of view of a Sudanese refugee boy and he said, prepare yourself for the backlash of when you're writing from the point of view of someone who isn't from your ethnicity. What's your advice on how we approach writing stories from the point of view of other people's identities, if you like, whether that be a, a gender identity or a, or a ethnic identity or a... Um, social identity, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, such a tricky, tricky, tricky area. My thing is, and especially when I think of Ella Brandy back then, and I never had any resentment for anyone writing the Italian experience who wasn't Italian because it, in a way it was better than seeing nothing, you know. Mm. And I think that there are some cultures who haven't, um, not that they haven't started telling their stories because they've been telling their stories probably orally or, you know, in a different language all their lives. But I think that, you know, it goes back to what I was saying about someone reading my work and saying, well, you know what, if she did it about the Italians, then I can do it about, you know, whether it is a Sudanese or anyone else. So sometimes you think they have to be written by someone mm. and then you hope that, Whoever that someone is has inspired someone from the actual culture to write. My problem sometimes with people who do write outside the culture is they don't do their research. They start and end with this um, stereotype. And I think if you're going to write about another culture, you actually can't make one single mistake. If you were writing, if I was writing about Italians, I can make a few mistakes. I can make a few generalizations. I could even introduce a stereotype. If I'm writing about a different culture, I can't do any of that. So I think you just have to be really respectful. But as I said, I would rather someone be reading about their culture than that idea that that culture doesn't exist. And, you know, I think back being a reader when I was 15 and there was just, there were no traces of me or my culture um, on the pages of books I read. I loved reading them, but I just thought, where am I? Um, and when you ask the question, where am I as a child or as a teenager, um, you start believing that you're not important. And I think that it's so important for young people especially to see themselves 
you know, um, on the pages of books and to be inspired to write their own stories. In Alabrandi and also Francesca, when you're, you're writing about the Italian, your Italian family and, and you know, that, that side of the story, they're obviously not painted in a perfect light because nobody's perfect. Did you receive any any um, resistance or criticism from your family about the way you'd represented them? Not at all from family, not at all from, you know, friends or people I knew. I once in a while hear that an academic didn't like the way, you know, the Italians were portrayed in um, Looking Salabrandi. Um, but I think that, you know, it's that reading too much into a character and and a culture. And I always say this, that family, that community is authentic to me mm-hmm. in the same way as the Saving Francesca one. And even if I have to move away from culture, you know, one of the main things in Saving Francesca is a mental illness. It's her mother's depression. And I've had, um, I won't say so much, but I certainly have had backlash. Um, and a lot of people have an opinion about the way I dealt with um, mental illness because maybe I didn't push antidepressants enough, or I didn't push this enough. And my response to that is I wrote about my experience yeah. and my family's experience, and that is going to be different to someone else's. So I don't ever apologise for anything I did or didn't do in that book because I was writing from a real place. I guess that kind of goes back to the point you were just making, that while you're writing within something that is of your own experience, you do have a lot more leeway to basically um, present it warts and all, but if you're presenting someone else's experience, you need to be a little bit careful of which warts you present, I suppose. Definitely, definitely. And I do remember, like with Alabrandi, um, you know, when the film or the film script was being written before I wrote it, um, you know, I remember earlier drafts, they were, they were not written by an Italian writer, and I found them incredibly um, stereotyped. I was quite insulted sometimes by, you know, what I was reading. And it was, once again, either romanticising the culture um, or it was stereotyping, and I found this great resentment that that wasn't authentic. And, you know, so it's just, it's, it's I suppose, um, once again, how much research someone does and how authentic that voice is. And, you know, and it's also writing without an arrogance or, you know, writing, if you're writing another culture, you know, making sure that the the saving part of that story doesn't come from a dominant culture. And that's what I think people tend to do quite a lot, that there's always the white person who's the family that takes in you know, um, you know, people of a minority, and I'm liking now that we see that exact opposite of that. That it's, you know, what a a family um, of refugees or a family um, that comes from a minority culture has to offer um, the country or, or the world. Yeah, I remember Russell Peters, the um, Indian Canadian, I think he is, or Indian Indian American uh, comedian, talking about this and saying that. Um, there are so many stereotypes around culture in terms of who can play what roles in Hollywood. You know, he, he says you very rarely you you'll never find an Indian or a subcontinental person as the as the villain in a Hollywood movie, but it'll always be Russian or South African or or Vietnamese, mm-hmm. or, you know, it's, uh, or, or or Italian for that matter. But um, yeah, it's, it's it's odd, isn't it, how we kind of fall back on these tropes? Oh, definitely, and. And they're easy ones for, um, you know, when you're, you know, when you're 
when networks or when producers are involved, it's an easy one for them to understand. So they believe that people want a formula. And I think these days people want more than that. Yeah, I suppose a 90-minute Jerry Bruckheimer film is more uh, intent on getting that story up and down as quickly as they can, so they don't think they can waste time in um, in making someone else the villain, I suppose. It's easy just to kind of get with the tropes that present a, an easy way forward. And it all kind of revolves around who, you, you know, your main character and your main actor, so everything builds around them. So they might say, well, we can't have someone who's similar to him, so we have to have someone who's the exact opposite. You know, it goes back to that even that whole story trail thing of, you know, if someone's pure and beautiful, they had to be blonde. But if they were the evil ones, they had to be dark hair because it's like an audience would not understand, you know, seeing two of the same sort of people on the screen. So it's, it's kind of lazy writing, I have to say. Very lazy writing. And I know that as a viewer and even reading books, it's I don't laugh too long um, if, if I'm presented with that because I just think, oh, too lazy, so... Bruce Watley was talking about a lot of the trade work that he was doing illustrating books for the American market and every scene had to have the Asian American kid, the the African American kid, the Native American kid, the child in the wheelchair. Every scene had to have, every picture he drew had to have some representation of everyone. I mean, where, where does it stop, this idea of identity and, and inclusion, do you think? I think it stops when we see equality on a screen. Um, you know, it's it's so still dominated um, that it has to come to a day where, you know, where someone is playing the lead who doesn't you know, look like, um, you know, the typical hero. And when you're, when you're looking at a picture book where you're not dominated um, by a particular look and a particular illustration. So I think it can only happen when that balance is there and I think that people will kind of tear back from it. Um, look, I, I have an issue with it as well, but I have probably a bigger issue with the fact that our stories are still dominated, um, you know, by a particular culture. I'm, I feel terrible saying this. I'm sometimes just not interested in stories about the middle class anymore or, you know, a particular... <laughs> I don't know, it's just a, and it's not because I'm going, okay, I am not going to watch a film like that again, it's that the stories don't interest me anymore because they've been done to death. So I, I'm looking for something different. I don't know. I just I feel as if I'm bored by that sort of storytelling. So, um, so yeah, it's just... Look, I, I find it's the same when you're going to this adaption, adaptation of a novel. Um, you get, you know, you start being asked about the culture of the characters and... You know, there are some characters in my novels where I think, oh, gosh, they can be anything. And others where yeah. I have to say, no, no, they, they do not want to budge from the fact that they belong to this particular culture because this is what I'm trying to say. And, you know, so I just think that tokenism is crap and so is stereotypes and lack of diversity. So there has to be a middle ground. And the middle ground is just called storytelling. Good storytelling, right. no one should be asking the questions. It should just be there and you don't even question, going back to say something like Alabunda, you don't even question whether social networking is or anything else because the storytelling is enough, you know, to keep someone sustained. Yeah, one of the more interesting aspects of this that we've seen in the last few years or in the last couple of decades, I guess, was people wanting to rewrite books like 
Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, Uncle Tom's Cabin to remove a lot of the racially charged language that at the time was quite, well, it was the way the language was used. What's your view on that? Well, uh, look, it's just hard because something like Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, um, for me, you're, and most of the time, I mean, people are reading it for enjoyment, of course, but you're studying it. And I think that Mm. when you're studying it, that's what we should be discussing, you know. This is... Um, a book that was written at a particular time. Let's talk about the context. Um, mm. A book like that could have been written today. No, and if it was, it would be totally racist. So I think that we do have to take into consideration when it was written um, and the purpose of the writer, and you know that has to be taken into consideration with regards to you know the way we react to it. Um, you know, and I think that some re I, I'm, I don't know if the word's rewriting, but I think of film and I think of, you know, um, with Annie, which is such a classic musical where the girl always had, you know, this mop of orange hair. And my daughter's grown up on the version where the girl is African-American and doesn't even question it. It, it makes all the sense in the world, you know. Mm. So there are some things that you watch where you think, of course it can be done that way. Anyway, it can be anyone. Pride and prejudice can be done in any culture because there's always going to be that idea that, you know, um, someone's family wants them to attain something because of the status of the women. But other other books probably should be left as they were back then and discussed in context, um, in, in that context, rather than someone trying to prove a point. Yeah, I mean, for example, um, Romeo and Juliet, you know, they, they fall in love in an afternoon and they're, um, they're both dead by the weekend. It kind of comes across as being rather silly when you look at it that way. But then when you think about it in the context of it being a play that was written for performance before it was written as something that we would sit down and read, then it tends to make a lot more sense uh, culturally. Yeah, well, I'm always so critical of Romeo and Juliet, only because <laughs> Romeo was in love with someone else, I think, three days beforehand. Um, so it's always kind of like, oh my goodness, you know. Um, so yeah, I just, I mean, this and and Shakespeare's a classic example. Like I probably can't enjoy a production of The Merchant of Venice, you know, whereas I can enjoy so many other um, Shakespeare plays. But I think with that, and I remember when I first taught it and I first read it, I just found the female character just so dynamic, and I can't read her now without to the racist, you know, so it's just really interesting um, that journey that you take with the work that you read 30 years ago as opposed to what you're reading now. Whereas as a jumping off point for exploring how anti-Semitism was part of European history and how it was a, a cultural factor in what happened down the track, I suppose it's very, it's very useful in that context, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. And you'd like to think that someone in a classroom is talking about that and not just how wonderful, you know, um, the characters are, you know, outwitting Sherlock. So, no, Sherlock, Sherlock. So. Sherlock. Um, Sherlock's a different story. No, I, I was thinking about Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, no, Sherlock. I know they're different. <laughs> <laughs> Melina Maketa, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, it's been, uh, it's always a pleasure chatting with you and, um, like everyone else, I'm, I'm grateful to what you've contributed so far in your career to the, uh, 
pantheon of young adult writing in this country and internationally. So I always like seeing you in festivals and schools and watching people's faces light up when they realise they're talking to the person who wrote Ella Brandy. So that's always nice to see. So thank, thank you, you so much for joining us and um, talk to you again soon. Okay, thanks, Kate.